Troy Duffy is on the line with us to talk about Boondock Saints 1 and 2, what he's up to, and the world according to Troy. Troy Duffy is the writer-director of the Boondock Saints and the Boondock Saints All Saints Day. On March 11th, which is in four days, there is a nationwide special one-night release of the original Boondock Saints to celebrate the film's 10-year anniversary. Troy and members of the Boondock Saints family are currently touring the country on the Boondock Saints tour bus celebrating this 10-year anniversary. Mm -hmm. uh, it's stopping at colleges and venues, holding parties for fans, and uh, you know, giving thank you for their support. So let us welcome to Film Courage, Mr. Troy Duffy. Hello, Troy. Welcome. Hey, guys. How are you? We're doing great. Excellent. How are you? Thank, thank you for joining us yes, today, Troy. For those of you listening live, if you have questions for Troy, you know, our, our Twitter has already been blowing up. Our, our Gmail has already been blowing up. But you can send them through Twitter, at Film Courage. Um, any inquiries you have off the air, you can send through um, Twitter or, or through email, filmcourage at gmail.com. Okay, so before we get to your background, Troy, since you are on tour, where are you right now, and how many days does this tour continue? Just another couple of weeks. Uh, we're, uh, we're going through southern Ontario, Canada right now, crossing back to the U.S. We did Toronto last night, uh, where we actually shot both films, Boondock 1 and 2 in Toronto. Uh, we kind of faked it for cost and took advantage of their, their tax rebates and uh, the nice. uh, American dollar, um, uh, the strength of the American dollar both times. It's kind of a little independent film trick when you think about it. Save yourself some money, stretch a dollar up here in Canada. Very we nice. came back to see these fans and a bunch of the actors that had, uh, I had pulled out of the Toronto talent pool. We had a great time last night, and uh, now we're, gonna, we're doing New York uh, on Tuesday, I believe. You know, and about your tour, Troy, we, we have this two-part question already from, from a fan um, from Austria Ward. Any, any chance that you will make it to San Francisco? And secondly, um, who would I need to beg? <laughs> yeah, uh, San Francisco's probably not going to happen. Um, just because we're, you know, we're on the opposite end of the country right now. So we're, we're, we've got kind of a, lot, a bunch of dates concentrated in a... Ohio, uh, um, uh, Pennsylvania, New York, Boston sort of area, okay. and then we're cruising back to L.A., but we would probably, we're probably going to have something in California, maybe Long Beach or something like that. Oh, nice. Okay. okay. Well, there Very you go, cool. Asher. You have, you have to make it down to Long mm -hmm. Beach, so, so, so stay, stay tuned for that. Now, Troy, I read that you're from Hartford, Connecticut, as is David. Is that right? Yeah, uh, I was born there. It's kind of weird to say you're from there. I don't remember. We, we moved all up and down sort of the New England uh, seacoast when I was a kid. So I'm from many different places in, 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 uh, in, uh, in Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire. Okay, and when did you decide you were going to move to L.A., and what led you to that decision? Uh, I, was, I dropped out of school after about a year and a half, um, and I wanted to be a musician, so uh, mm -hmm. I just packed up, you know, my dreams and my van and moved out to Los Angeles. And uh, the, you know, the script writing thing happened years later. You know, I mean, how, where, where, how did your creative passion develop, Troy? Like, when did you realize, you know what, I, I want to do something creative with my life. I, I don't want to work a nine-to-five job. I guess I always kind of knew that in the back of my head. I, I, I always am doing something creative, you know. I even got to have different hobbies that are creative, keep my hands working. I've always been a guitar player. 
uh, I've, you know, I read all the time. My father made all of his children read a novel a month extracurricularly in our childhood and give an oral book report to the whole family. Oh, wow. At the end of each month, uh, no matter no matter what, you know, and you, you know, when you're that young, you want to be out there playing ball. But my father was showing us what good writing was and how that how that was different from bad writing or brilliant writing, and uh, you know, it made me a bit of a novelaholic. Uh, so I'm an avid reader, um, and writing just came kind of kind of natural. I don't regard sort of book writing as the same as script writing. Scripts aren't really, you know, they're not for reading so much as being made into something else, being made into a film. Um, so that seemed like an easier thing uh, for me, you know, when I, when I decided to sit down and write one, you know, rather than actually write a book, which, you know, at that point you're, you're standing on the shoulders of giants, so that was a little scary for me. I admire the belief and confidence you have in yourself. Where does that come from? Uh... Well, you have no idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess the Duffies have always been kind of a tough little clan, you know. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, we're just, uh, you know, brought up to be a little bit more self-reliant than most. Mm-hmm. It was funny, too, because when I was, you know, going through high school and college, you start realizing that some kids got, you know, parents that do everything, buy them a car and, when kid comes home, he's got, you know, milk and cookies waiting for him. It, 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 that never really happened in my family. And, uh, and I actually think that it, it, uh, it does them a, a disservice in growing up if they're coddled too much, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, can you share the inspiration, you know, what pulled you away from music to write the script? I mean, in those books that you read every month, were there any on screenwriting? No, no, I never read any books on screenwriting or anything like that, but uh, I suppose I was just motivated. I was in Los Angeles, you know, my brother and I and a couple of friends of ours were in a band together, and uh, I kind of had to get this off my chest, you know. It was just something I, I'd always been thinking about little stories and little bits of dialogue just pop in my head every now and then, so I just thought to myself, geez, there's got to be some reason for it. Mostly I just put it in songs. But now I'm thinking, all right, uh, why don't we we try writing a script? I mean, I'm in Los Angeles. Everybody's got a goddamn script anyway, right? (laughs) So I I borrowed a a friend's, like I had a buddy that worked at a production company. He gave me a script that was actually made into a movie so I could watch the film and read the script and see how it was done. And I just simply copied the format and uh, wrote Boondock Saints. And uh, my friend Chris Brinker happened to be an assistant at New Line Cinema. Uh, I guess it was the right assistant, and uh, he asked if he could handle it. I said, sure, go ahead, not really expecting anything. And uh, next thing you know, it was like uh, it created quite a buzz in Hollywood. Now, Troy, what was the Boondock Saints script? Was that was that the first script that you wrote? Yeah. Oh. So so you literally pass it off to, to your friend, and, and, I mean, can you can you give us a little bit more detail in terms of what led – to, to sort of this, this buying frenzy around this script from this unknown, unheralded writer? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny, too, because uh, I, I had the instant hatred of every writer in town um, <laughs> when I sold my script because I, it was my first script that I had ever written. You know, there's a lot of writers that just banging it out every day. they got 10, 15, 20 scripts, and sometimes I'll go their whole career without selling any of them. So uh, I was immediately sort of uh, an outcast among the... Hollywood writer sect. <laughs> um, sure. 
but uh, it, it, it just kind of happened strangely, you know. And what, what, what my producers tell me and what my agents at the time told me, it, it was just that kind of writing that just separated itself from all the other stuff. I mean, if you think about it, these guys in Hollywood, they read the same types of scripts over and over and over again, you know. So when something new hits their desk, they sort of, you know, stand up and take note. When they enjoy reading something for a change, when they when they see something new on that page, it affects them differently. And that's what happened with Boondog. And and what was the time frame? I mean, you know, in terms of when you handed it off to your friend, and, and all of a sudden it starts getting filtered in through the system. How much time, you know, was transpiring before all of a sudden there was heavy interest, and you and you have people fighting for, for to to make this film. I think it happened within a couple of months, maybe two months, maybe two and a half months. He, 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 God, CB was, uh, he, he's an assistant at New Line Cinema, and he was sort of obligated, if he, you know, because he, he obviously wanted to be a producer, and he's working himself up through the ranks there, and he was obligated to go to New Line first. Mm -hmm. Well, the, his contacts at New Line passed on Boondock Saints uh, when they first got it, uh, and then suddenly... Uh, some other, it started getting a lot of heat after that, you know, suddenly um, being courted by William Morris Agency, CAA, all these large um, talent agents. So now people are starting to revisit the script that he first gave it to, but now, by now it's kind of it's kind of expanded out to everywhere, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, Harvey Weinstein got a copy of it and uh, said he wanted to move on it right away. Uh, by that time, Mike DeLuca over at New Line found out that it was a script that had originated within his house, and here's Harvey Weinstein moving on it, so he, he grabs the script, uh, reads it, and he decides he wants it. So it becomes a bidding war between the two, which Miramax ultimately won. You know, and that and that's what you're speaking on. That, that's what leads me here. You know, you, this whole legendary story where where, where Merrimack, Merrimax bought your script um, with you attached to direct. They, you know, they offered somewhere something like three hundred thousand for the script and an additional hundred fifty thousand to direct and edit. Um, and and you were going to be given a fifteen million dollar budget for the film. Your band w would do the soundtrack, soundtrack, and and they were even going to throw in co ownership of Jay Sloan's, which is the bar where you worked. Um, so, uh, you know, along with this story is a documentary done on you that chronicles your struggle to complete the original Boondock Saints, and it includes your eventual falling out with Merrimax. Um, this isn't something we want to harp on here on the show, but I bring it up because the film is one-sided. You know, it's a hatchet job, and, and you know, this is our first time speaking with you, but we, we know a lot of people um, that, that know you and, and speak very highly mm -hmm. of you. Uh, for those of you, for those listening who only know you by the documentary, you know I, I would love for you to just squash it uh, right here, right now. Yeah, I mean it's something that you. I, I, it's it's really strange because most reporters and critics seem to really want to believe that story. They want to believe that that's true and that's exactly the way it happened. And I'm this huge asshole. Um, they never, and, and it's funny too, because these are supposed to be the objective people. They never take a second and go, wait a minute, what was the real agreement here? What's the story? I mean, it's pretty easy to make somebody look like an asshole when you don't uh, give the who, what, why, where, when to let the audience make their own decision. What you saw was a, uh, an agenda-driven piece by two opportunistic assholes that decided to screw over everybody that ever helped them. Um, what happened was these guys were planning on bootstrapping their documentary 
to Boondock Saints. You know, didn't get a theatrical release because of the Columbine incident. They thought that that was it, and they had done all this work for nothing. So their answer to that was to disappear to the hills with their footage, and a year later we see this thing. They went sensationalistic on it. It is an untruthful piece. Uh, and I suppose, you know, it, hel it helps me kind of weed out the weak ones from the herd. If anybody totally buys into that, I mean, because I'm, nobody would invest $6 in that guy. Never mind $6 million it took to make that film, you know. My ultimate answer, I guess, to it is every piece of cast, including Willem Dafoe, came back and did a sequel for me. What are these people, masochists? They signed up for another, you know, uh, three months of torture from Troy? Uh, it just it doesn't ha it didn't happen that way. What you see is a kid fighting for his film and fighting for the careers of his bandmates and his friends, and that can be edited together to just uh, give you uh, 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 sensationalistic aspects of the story without giving you the, the background of what happened. I guarantee this: every young filmmaker that's out there that saw that. If they actually knew what I was yelling about and who I was yelling at and why and what the situation was, uh, they would not uh, have absorbed it the way that they did. And I, I, in fact, think most of them would have been on my side. I've always been a fighter. I will continue to be a fighter. You have to be, in my opinion, in independent film. That's what I did for those three very tumultuous years. I just made the mistake of letting two friends of mine follow me around with a video camera when I did it. Let's also bring up Columbine, because uh, didn't the film get released right around that time? And when you heard about Columbine, what was your what was your thought? Yeah, I knew it was going to affect us. I mean, uh, frankly, the the, the 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 a commonplace thing to do for young filmmakers is to get your film made however possible. Some guys dig into their pocket credit card, have their moms come in, they got a financier or something. Get your movie made, and then what they do is they have screenings at the studio lots, hoping that you know a Sony or a Paramount or whatever will will buy their film and and get behind it and put it out in theaters. Uh, and that's what we were trying to do too. And our screenings were extremely well attended, and the audience reactions were off the charts. And uh, yet it wasn't getting bought, and we all kind of knew it because it was about two weeks after Columbine. I mean, the day we had our first screening, uh, Bill Clinton landed in uh, Los Angeles, threatening to form a judiciary committee to censor violent films and video games. And uh, the industry's uh, reaction to that was to bend right over and grab their ankles as usual. So uh, nobody was going to touch Boondock Saints. Just and there was actually even a, an acquisitions guy from a from a uh, uh, there was an acquisitions guy from a studio who actually came up and said, uh, you know, you've been blacklisted from from theater screens in the U.S. Um, you know, I, I want to take this moment. I want to I want to come back because um, we have a question coming in from filmmaker um, Thomas Corcoran. He says, after seeing the documentary overnight, I found your personal and creative journey during the during the years that surrounded Boondock Saints compelling, to say the least. My question to you is, why haven't you directed any smaller scale films that, while possibly not having the commercial scope of Boondock Saints, would have been stepping stones to get you back to where you deserve to be? You are a nat you are natural at filmmaking. Um, so, you know, how, how would you respond to that, Troy? Well, uh, I am. I, I have the, the 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 slight distinction of being a writer director, uh, and I can't imagine doing it any other way. Uh, so I need 
you know, I'm, I'm more comfortable directing and, and making films of my own stuff. Uh, that's not always possible. And some of it is uh, smaller films than Boondock, just like he suggested. I've got about, I think, five scripts that I've written over the last uh, bunch of years while we were struggling to get Boondock 2 made. Um, uh, and I'm going to try to knock them down one by one. Um, but it's not so much, you know, the, 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 the size of the material in terms of small independence or larger budget films. It's just what the right material is at the time. When you make a, a, a cult film like Boondock One and you've got an audience of millions of people crying out for a sequel, that's the next movie you do. When you're lucky enough to know what the audience wants, you do it 100% of the time, or uh, you're, you're making a huge mistake. Kids, and this, this, this audience of, 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 of people for Boondock did not want to see, you know, my version of, of, of Precious or Frozen River. <laughs> they wanted to see Boondock 2, and uh, I fought until I was able to give it to them. So that's why I didn't do anything in between. Yeah, although I was made a couple of offers from from places to to you know do do films, uh, they just didn't happen to be the right ones. Uh, didn't like the writing, and uh, you know also knew personally that I had a very uh, large fan base out there that only wanted one thing. Can you talk about the inner resolve that you had to see this film through? I don't know that I did have an inner resolve. I mean, in terms of seeing the film through, making it and stuff like that, that's where your inner resolve comes in. In terms of its success, that's when you've got to hand the ball off to the audience. The, the, an audience, the, the people determine how successful a film's going to be, and that is that. I did everything I could, and I crawled across the finish line, you know, bloody and beaten. But... Uh, I learned something extremely that's, that's valuable to me. Uh, if you build it, they will come. You make a good movie, no matter if it's theatrically released or not, the kids are going to find it and make it a success on their own. So I wouldn't say that I gave up. I'd say that I, me and all these actors and producers struggled like hell to get this thing across the finish line and get it made. And then when Columbine happened and we were denied a theatrical release that we so richly deserved, uh, that, was a, that was a very depressing moment. And there's nothing you can do at that point. Your movie's going straight to video, and that's that. It was at that point when we could do no more that the audience came in and found it and did, what, and did the rest of it for us. Uh, when kids found this on those blockbuster shelves and it instantly created a forest fire in public that spread and spread and spread, that's when we were like, ah, you know, you, you can, all you have to do is make a good film and the kids will find it and make it successful on their own. And Boondock Saints has become a financial juggernaut. It's been selling at record levels for the last 10 years when the exploitation of most films is three to six months tops and then it's over. Boondock has been constantly selling, and that audience has been constantly growing, and uh, that's what I—that's what I'm, I think, most proud of. We—we—we uh, we, we broke our asses, but it was the—it was the fans who actually made it happen at the end of the day. So, so Troy, was that the lowest moment? And the whole point was when you didn't get the theatrical deal. And if—if if it wasn't the lowest point, what—what what was the lowest point for you? I'd have to say that was the lowest point, man. I mean, imagine that. I mean, look at that timing. 
here I'm coming out with a with a film that's even got some some crazy parallels to you know I got the trench coat mafia stuff that was going on in Columbine. I got two characters who wear trench coats the whole movie. The violence was committed by two young guys in Columbine. I got two young guys committing violence, you know, depicting violence in my film. I mean, it was like the worst timing of all time in the theater business. And uh, the fact that it suddenly was reflecting directly on film and video games right when we were trying to get our our thing off the ground. I mean, it, it seemed like, you know, uh, the world had conspired against us, you know? And, uh, uh, and they just weren't budging. Nobody would give us a shot. So that was the blackest point. And then I guess the... the, the the, the most bright point was when the audience found it and it started doing, Boondock started doing its thing, man. You know, we did everything we can and, and frankly handed the ball off to the kids. You know, they it, dragged it across the finish line for us. But, and, and how did that happen? How, how did the audience find the film? You know, you know, obviously it went straight to the home market, but, but what, 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 like how, did, how did it reach people? How did people discover it? How did they find it? Well, at first it was Blockbuster. Uh, Blockbuster thought it was pretty unfair what was happening to this Columbine thing, especially with us. They, so they released it in, in what's called a Blockbuster exclusive, which means they put about 60 to 120 copies per store and uh, released it as if it were a bigger film. And they also really loved the movie and thought that it would be, you know, thought that it would make some, it would do well financially, right? So they stuck it in there, and immediately it became their highest-grossing straight-to-video hit. You know, and Blockbuster's calling us up and going, "Guys, this is—we can't keep this thing on the shelves." You know, so that was the first indication we got. From that point forward, I mean, it's kids finding it on their own. I'm, if a critic comes up, if if a critic writes a review or reviews a movie on TV poorly or or good. Uh, I've never gone to see a movie or not see a movie based on what a critic said. But when my friend comes up to me and says, dude, you have to check this film, 100% of the time I do it. So you've got these fans that are spreading the word on their own. They want to see their faces, their buddies' faces change and laugh on certain things. They want to be the guy that brought Boondock into their world. It becomes like a thing where it's become very, very personal. And let's not forget, these kids were never advertised to. There was never any you know, television commercial saying, please come see Boondock Saints. They found it on their own. So it became a much more personal thing for them, which is why this fan base is completely rabid, you know? I run into people all the time with the tattoos related to the film all over their bodies. Uh, you know, these fans are a whole different breed than most movie fans. For all the filmmakers listening and for those getting ready to sign away their rights to their film, what do they need to know? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a that, that's a strange story. It was, it was, the money wasn't not only just not going to me, uh, but also the actors who had back end in the film and the producers. You know, this was uh, we we made the mistake of getting involved with a completely unscrupulous company, uh, and uh, one of the reasons Boondock Two took ten years is because we initiated a lawsuit against the financiers, distributors of Boondock One, in which the sequel rights were tied. So uh, that was a fight we just had to take on because what they did was unconscionable. 
This was a movie that only cost $6 million. Its global gross is, 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 this is just speculation, but it's got to be around the $200 million mark at this point, from what we know. Uh, and to suggest that that film had not uh, recouped its original budget uh, was ludicrous, especially since, you know, your actors and stuff, they're running into people all the time, like, oh, my God, Boondock Saint, and it's making top ten lists all over the place, and we're not seeing a dime of it. Now, luckily, I had the merchandising rights, so I was able to open up a website and stuff and sell, you know, Boondock merchandise and keep my head, you know, my personal head above water. But, um, uh, you know, none of the none of the money that was coming, the millions and millions and millions of dollars that was coming in, not a penny of it was going to anybody that made the movie. And here we are waving around our contracts to kids that believe you can't do a hundred million dollar hit and not make make a cent. I'm living proof that that can happen. Uh, and what I learned, I think, is that it, it matters the 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 company that you make the deal with and the individuals within that company are what matter, because it doesn't really matter what a contract says. Uh, I've learned that in courts that it's completely arguable, even though it, se it seems like it's sitting there in black and white. How can you misunderstand that? You get to the courts and all of a sudden it's a different story. Our contract was pretty much ironclad and they did this to us anyway, just expecting that we wouldn't sue them. Well, they thought wrong about that. I think the major thing I learned was, though, you have to get an ironclad contract with a scrupulous company. You know, working with a studio on the second time around, Sony, instead of a small indie house. I mean, look at it this way. Get these small indie houses. They'll make ten films. Chances are only one of them is going to make money, and they're in the hole on, you know, millions of dollars of budgets for the other nine. They got one film that's bringing in money. You can bet your ass that they're not going to turn around and give it to the filmmakers as per the contract when they got to keep their lights on and pay down their own bills. When I look around the, the independent film landscape, Troy, um, I, I do not see a, many filmmakers who have amassed the, the rabid fan base, the, the fan support that you have. And, and I believe this is a key, obviously, to, to, to how you have resurrected your career. Um, not, not all of us. Um, at this point, can can take a tour bus around the country and connect with the fans the way you are right now. But can you can you share specifically the ways you began to build your fan base and and what you have done to to nurture this fan base? Well, I mean, you know, you get a, you get a website and you commune with them and you listen to their opinions and stuff. But the the fan base, you know, amassed itself and is continuing to grow every day. You know. Uh, in terms of what I do, and you know, like being able to jump on a tour bus and stuff. Yeah, sure. Maybe maybe a lot of people aren't uh, aren't able to do that, but you know, it, it, we we this is sort of tangibility to our crew. You know, when when a Boondock fan comes up to you, there's no there's no BS involved. You know that they're a fan. They know every line of this movie. So communing with these people is some of the funnest things you can ever do. I mean, uh, just last night, me, Sean, and Norm um, sat there signing autographs for a couple of hours, taking pictures. It's just fun stuff. Uh, but in terms of sort of activating that fan base and, 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 and grouping them together on certain sites and stuff that we have and contacting them for the things that we're doing, yeah, you know, all the... Uh, all the IT guys on the crew are pretty good at that. So whose idea was it for you to speak uh, directly to the fans on uh, your YouTube channel? Uh, I'd, I'd advise any young filmmaker to try to, to try to do that, too. 
I mean, when they were able to keep their finger on the pulse of production through making a film with these little YouTube videos, and Sean and Norm messing around, you know, a guy threw a camera on me, you know, and I, I would answer fan questions. It keeps them excited about the movie, no, and, and, and it also keeps them heartened that it's actually being made and going to come out after 10 years of waiting, you know. So that kind of stuff is invaluable. And what's been the best thing that's happened so far uh, on the Boondock Saints tour? Oh, God. I don't even know if I could pick one. The other night, this, we'll pick a couple. Uh, the other night, this guy, this guy, uh, this guy uh, couldn't get in for some reason, and I'm out there having a cigarette, and I'm talking to him. He rips off his shirt. He's got the, the brother's prayer tattooed all the way down his back, and he's got Connor Murphy and Billy Connolly tattooed across his chest. And uh, I just grabbed him and took him inside. I was like, don't worry, we'll... We'll find a spot for you. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. But, I mean, it, 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 on any given evening, ten things like that happen. And, you know, fans, it's funny, too. One of the really funny things is they, they genuinely don't think, they think that there's, I think that they're so jaded by the sort of wall between Hollywood and the fan base that they don't actually think we're going to be there when they show up to these things. And then suddenly there they are having a beer with Norman Reedus not knowing what the hell to say. You know, so there's, there's like a, there's a dearth of uncomfortable silences as well until they limber up a little bit and uh, realize that they're not being BS here. You know. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I want to turn back once again to our, our filmmaking um, listeners. Um, you know, all, all of us are working on carving out a career for ourselves. Um, you know, what, what would you say would be five building blocks that we have to have? Five five things. We have to be aware of if we're gonna if we're gonna be creating and distributing film for a living. Uh, number one would be make sure that you have talent. And if your mommy and your friends think that you're talented, that doesn't mean you have talent. You know, when complete strangers approach you and say, "I like what you read. I like. I mean, I like what you wrote. So, you know, I like what you you directed. I like how you acted there." Then you might have something. Two, you got to go to where the business is. I don't take anybody seriously who, who doesn't live in Los Angeles or New York if they're going to be a filmmaker. Uh, and you, at three, you then have to find your way in. Uh, I think we were discussing this earlier. There's no clear pathway I can give kids. Say, do this, this, and this. Call this number. Talk to this guy. And suddenly you can have a film career. There just isn't a dot-to-dot -dot for that. Every story is different. Every filmmaker has success in a completely different manner. Uh, mine was a strange one too, you know, so there's no real set of rules that you can follow and get success in the film business. You just have to be near it, be talented and find your way in. And in Boondock Saints, you focus on camaraderie. Is this something in your own life that you admire, you know, having a group or a family of people that have your back? And do you think that fans are drawn to the film because of this camaraderie aspect? Oh, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. You know, it's. Uh, I think it's something that we all yearn for. I've always had a crew of, of very close friends, and of course my brother, Taylor, uh, and uh, even being in a band, that's like a de facto family, you know? So camaraderie's always been important to me. I believe that it, it resonates with the fan base, too, because even people that don't have brothers or sisters yearn for those types of relationships. So... For some weird reason, it's kind of uh, it's kind of uh, been a, uh, an ongoing theme of Boondock. 
and has and has and has clicked on to the fan base pretty good. Now, Troy, looking back over these ten years that it took you to you know to make the original Boondocks and now the sequel, and, and I guess just your career thus far in general, if, if you could go back and, and change anything, um, what would you you know would you change anything? And, and if you would, what, what would you change? Well, uh, yeah, I mean you can you can you can think like that and go back over every single mistake you ever made in the business. Uh, two things I would change are I would have gone with New Line the first time around out of the Miramax. Uh, and uh, I, I would have liked to have been... Uh, one of the things I realized over this 10-year period is that you have to play the politics of this business. It is a necessity. You have to know where to compromise, where not to compromise. You can't burn bridges. You can't leave people feeling like they've been insulted or, or uh, you know, sidestepped and you have to go through the proper channel. So I wish I had knew more about the politics of this business and how uh, and the etiquette of this business. So those would be the two things that come to mind right away. However, our mistakes define us. The reason I know a lot more now and I'm better at it now is because I made those mistakes. So I wouldn't really, you know, click a button and go back and do it the right way if I could. Besides, we got a hell of a result out of it. <laughs> and with that, we've been talking a lot about the fans on this show already, Troy. And, and at, at this stage, what I want, what we'd like to do is we'd like to turn um, the show over to the fans. So we're, we're going to start getting to some of their questions right now. We, we have this question here from filmmaker Matson Tomlin. Um, comic book movies are the craze. If you could get your hands on a franchise, what would it be? Jeez, I don't know. I've never really been into comic books, which is strange because we're actually doing a comic book uh, uh, to Boondock, which is coming out in a few months. Um, and it's always kind of had a comic book feel to it. You know, it's almost like these guys are blue-collar superheroes. They even got their own superhero get-up and stuff like that. I can see where he's coming from. But, uh, you know, these comic book movies, I'm, I'm kind of getting sick to death of them. <laughs> Any old comic book, they're making into a, a freaking movie now, even ones that weren't really that big, in terms of comic, you know, in terms of the comic when it first came out, know. you know, I'm, I'm, I've had it up to here with that. I'd like to see some people do some original work, and then make a damn comic book out of it. We have uh, another uh, question from Riley Dukes. Riley writes, Mr. Duffy, I'm a huge Boondock Saints fan. I think you all did an amazing job on the sequel. I first saw Boondock Saints when my parents rented it one night while I was off babysitting. I came home, and they were already about 20 minutes into it, right when the brothers are going into the elevator to shoot the fat Russian guy. I was about 15. Anyway, my question is, what other films do you have in store for loyal fans? All right. Uh, good question, Riley. Uh, there are um, uh, two scripts that I'm uh, going to go out with now and see if we can set it up. One is a... Um, one is a buddy comedy that takes place in the 1500s called The Good King. Uh, it's a black comedy that I've written. Uh, the, other, the other one is called The Blood Spoon Council, which is a serial killer thriller that I've written. So we're going to try to set one of those two up within the next few months, and hopefully I'll be shooting that uh, this year. Okay, very nice. We have one from someone named Seven, and their Twitter address is at uh, Through the Lens on Twitter. Um, Seven writes, in the first Boondock Saints, the twins show a knowledge of weapons. Most pistols aren't hard to work if you know the basics, but carbines, M4 plus, aren't straightforward. Where does that come from? Were they in the Army or in the IRA? 
No, no, I, I think that that's just, it's, again, what we were talking about, the comic books, the superhero thing of it, they can just do it. It's, uh, it's a, just a prodigy thing. If you've got two guys that believe they're, you know, destined by God to be, you know, uh, uh, killers who rid the world of evil, uh, I'm not going to go into some backstory about how they can do all this stuff. It, it's just accepted because they're Connor and Murphy, you know. The same thing with the languages they know. They just know them. And their explanations are very short. Uh, you know, we studied hard in school. With superheroes, they can just do shit. <laughs> we have this question in from Christy Troy. What, what made you know that Norman Reedus and Sean Patrick Flannery were going to be the McManus brothers? What did, what did they have that others didn't? They had a unmistakable chemistry, uh, not only when they acted together, but when they just hung out together. From the second these guys met, they were finishing each other's sentences. Uh, so it's just a feeling, you know. It was a feeling that we had when we first saw Norm and Sean. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Miramax at the time did not have the same feeling. So I tried to do a you know, screen test to show them, uh, and uh, it ended up being a fight. But at the end of the day, uh, I know that we made the right decision on that. So, Troy, I'm curious, when you're not on the tour bus, take us through a day in the life of Troy Duffy. How do you prioritize your day? You know, what gets you up in the morning? Yeah, I'm a late sleeper. I'm not much of a morning person. Uh, but I, like I said, I read constantly. Uh, I try to keep creative all the time. Play, you know, plank my guitar a little bit here and there. Uh, work on a script, tighten up, you know, things, reread some of my older stuff. Uh, and, you know, that kind of thing. Spend time with my lovely wife. I have two dogs I love very much. I'm also a biker. I ride my uh, motorcycle all over the place. So, you know, it's uh, luckily this fan base has afforded me the, the, the uh, courtesy of not having to have a real job. So it's kind of a nice life if you can get it. You know, Troy, something we didn't quite touch on, um, but, you know, you did mention it, but I, I would love some more specifics on it. You know, d during the, 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 the eight years or ten years, whatever it was in terms of the first one and the second one, there's, there's all these years um, where, where, you know, where, where did the money come from? How, how, did you, how did you really sustain yourself over all those years if you're not going out, if you're not making another film? Um, what was the, what, you know, how did you sustain well, I mean, it, it got pretty thin for a while there, man, uh, for sure. Uh, but it was it was the fans, basically. I mean, uh, I, from the second I opened up that website and started selling Boondock merchandise, signed scripts and stuff like that, posters, they started buying it. And it wasn't always enough to, you know, cover. But we then uh, started selling our stuff uh, in retail, in this retail chain called Hot Topic, and uh, they, they we were able to do much higher volume. So all of a sudden, we had enough money to fund our lawsuit, which we then initiated at that point. So it, it took years to go through all that. But the, I think the fans don't know this. They, they, they kept the roof over my head and the food in my mouth over the last 10 years and funded a lawsuit by buying T-shirts. They, they got Boondock 2 made that way. And from their demand and continuing to buy this movie over and over again, I hardly can think of a director who's more beholden to a fan base than myself. And and, and what specifically? What kind of merchandise was it? More was it T-shirts? I mean, what what else were you selling originally from your website? Uh, originally, I think all we sold was one T-shirt, uh, a signed script, and then it, it started getting more like button stickers, pins, flasks, 
more T-shirts, uh, hoodies, thermals, like, you know, any anything with Boondock on it, these kids are just snapping right up. <laughs> and, and Troy, can, can you touch on, on something that you've learned? I mean, obviously you've learned a lot over the last 10 years, but can you touch on something that you've just learned in the last couple months that, that really excites you as as you move forward? Jeez, you know, n- nothing really comes to mind. Well, yeah, I, 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 okay. One of the things that excites me is we've got a theatrical release this time, uh, though it be in limited release for, for Boondock 2. And uh, we made $11 million in six weeks, I think. Uh, yeah, and this is during the, you know, Twilight vampire thing and uh, Avatar coming out. Uh, that's against some pretty hefty competition, uh, but we weren't in as many theaters by a long stretch as those guys. What I learned is that, uh, again, I, I mean, it, it really is, though not a necessity, it is really nice to have a theatrical release and have a studio behind you. It was it was cool to have that experience. Now I hope the next one we can go into wide release uh, and and go even further. And uh, I'm also looking forward to you know having um, a larger budget to work with. Because in independent film, a lot of times you, you have to creatively solve problems because you don't have money. Uh, I'm kind of dying to see what it feels like to, to be able to put your exact vision of something on film rather than have to, you know, find creative solutions for everything. Mm-hmm. Okay, in these last couple of minutes here, Troy, would, you know, would you mind kind of bringing everyone up to speed in terms of where you are right now with, with Boondock Saints? You know, I know you're, you're on tour now. Um, you, you have a national screening of, of the original Boondock Saints that's hitting theaters um, March 11th. Can, can you just bring us up to speed? I, I know you also have the, the DVD release. Can, can you kind of just sum up for everyone where, where, where everything stands? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really interesting one to me. I mean, after 10 years, uh, we're finally getting a theatrical release on Boondock 1, uh, which, uh, again, is a testament to this fan base. That doesn't happen, guys. I mean, name me the film where that's happened. After 10 years, they they actually put the thing in, in theaters. Yeah, although it's only for one night, it is across the country. So we're really excited about that. And, uh, you know, I'm in, uh, we're, we're doing a gig here in uh, New York. Um, was it Tuesday, Ryan? Yeah, Tuesday. Tuesday night, we're doing a gig at Webster Hall in New York. And then uh, we're doing patties in Boston at this awesome club called The Paradise. So we're just kind of out here partying with the fans right now. And that's kind of where I'm at. And I think that, uh, I mean, if you want to extend the analogy even further, try to, you know, cobble together a list of, of films where the sequel's even viable after 10 years. Usually, any time you want to make a sequel, you have a two-year window to do that. And then people just forget and it's over. Boondock stayed alive and is more alive today than it was yesterday. So, you know, that's where I am right now. And, and putting in the womb of my fan base. And and, and when are we when are we going to get the the DVD release of, of Boondock Saints two? Uh, the DVD comes out March 9th, which is what we're doing in New York at Webster Hall. That's our DVD release party. A bunch of guys from Sony are going to be down there, a bunch of the actors. We're going to have uh, a couple bands performing from the uh, soundtrack of the sequel. My own brother Taylor will be performing. I'm actually picking up my axe after 10 years and jump on stage with him to do a couple of numbers. But, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of where we're at right now. I mean, the DVD drops on the 9th. Uh, so far, you know, we, we, we've done amazingly well in pre-sales. 
and it looks like it's going to be just as hot as the first one. We want to thank writer-director Troy Duffy of the Boondock Saints and the Boondock Saints 2 All Saints Day. You can find out more about the films, the 10th anniversary tour, the Boondock Store with official merchandise, and lots more at boondocksaints.com. Thanks again, Troy. Thank you, Troy. Thank you. Hey, you guys. That was awesome.